Luke chapter 7 tonight. I've got, a, I think, a handout, and several had helped get those around. Thank you so much. We're coming tonight to a story in Scripture that many of us are familiar with, Luke 7, beginning with verse 36. We'll read that in just a moment. Uh, sort of to set that up, I'd set it up by uh, a, a story by a man named Stu Weber, who writes in a book called Leadership, uh, about his experience with his three sons. Uh, he had two older sons, obviously, and then the younger son. And the younger son, by the time he started to become elementary age and later elementary and into being a teenager, he had two older brothers that had kind of done everything first. Some of y'all might have those kids. By the time he was coming through, both of his older brothers had been all conference this and all conference that in sports. And the younger brother was trying to figure out his identity. Well, his, his parents had gotten him a pocket knife for Christmas one year. And he started carrying that thing around everywhere. So they would go camping and do all kinds of things. And all of a sudden, this young boy found his identity was being the boy with a knife. If they needed something cut, he was there. Needed a knife for this or for that. Christmas morning, the presents are getting open. Guess who Johnny on the spot with the knife was? It was this son. Stu Weber describes one day, some years later, uh, that he was, had, a, had a birthday coming up. And his youngest son wanted to give him a present before the rest of the family gave them their presents. And so there in his office, his youngest son came up and gave him a gift and he wanted to see his dad's reaction. And he opened that box. And when he opened that box, he saw that his youngest son had given him his most prized possession, his knife. It wasn't so much that the dad wanted the knife, but the gift was so meaningful because it was what was the most prized thing to the son. And dad said he never forgot that. Tonight we read a story where we don't ever see in Scripture that Jesus' greatest ambition is to be uh, anointed with ointment or with perfume, but we do see the value that is given in what is done and the meaning that is shown by the type of gift and the way it is given. Now, I want to mention just a few technical notes you got on your page before we read the passage tonight that I think are kind of interesting and help us think about uh, shaping and, and thinking through this. And so let me go ahead and say this. Number one, that first little dot you got there, this passage, or I guess I should probably say this exact story, may or may not be given in all four Gospels. Now, I'm not saying, <laughs> understand this, what I'm saying here. We're not certain whether Matthew 26, Mark 14, John 12, and the passage here tonight in Luke 7 all tell of the same incident or whether it tells of perhaps two different or even three different uh, incidents of anointing. Now, we could waste a lot of time going into all the arguments for that. I'm not going to do that here tonight, but I do want to be able to say that it is interesting that in all four Gospels, a woman anoints Jesus. Matthew and Mark say that they focus on the anointing of Jesus' head uh, that takes place. Luke and John focus on the anointing of his feet. In Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the woman is not named and the host is. We see a man named Simon in each one of those accounts. Interestingly enough, in John's account, the host is not named and the lady is Mary, the sister of Lazarus. Now, it may be because of the timing in the Gospels and otherwise that these two things happened, that there was one instance of a woman anointing Jesus' feet and head and another one which happened later. It may be that it's the same. Y'all can study up on that and impress your friends, but we're not going to do that tonight. What I do think is important, though, is that every Gospel contains an anointing of Jesus' feet by a woman who is very thankful. 
Matthew, Mark, and Luke, uh, no, excuse me, Matthew, Mark, and John have as their focus to this story or a story of this happening, the cost of the perfume and was it wasteful for them to have wasted what was, you know, what was, what was anointed with, on Jesus? Was it wasteful for them to do that? Even Judas Iscariot speaks up in John's gospel to be able to condemn the wastefulness of that anointing. All three of the others have controversy over the cost of the perfume. Only Luke mentions the fact that the woman who anointed Jesus' feet was a sinner. Only Luke. It's only here that we're able to get a window into the focus that we have. So that other little dot you've got there, after I say only Luke describes this woman as a sinner, the second dot says this, Luke has a particular focus on Jesus' forgiveness. Luke has a particular focus on Jesus' forgiveness. And I'm so thankful. I'm thankful for Matthew and Mark and John. But you know, the Gospels aren't four carbon copies of one another. And at times we find something out that we would not have known otherwise. And I'm so thankful that Luke, under the power of the Holy Spirit, felt the burden to let us know about the forgiveness of Jesus. The word sinner is found in Luke's gospel more times than in Matthew's gospel and Mark's gospel combined. There was a way in which Luke knew his message and his audience needed to understand the forgiveness of Jesus. Let me show you a few pictures here tonight so we can shape the context as well. I think I've showed you this picture before. This is a typical meal uh, that you might be eating. You'd be eating uh, some pita bread and tree branches, it looks like. I don't know what... <laughs> I don't know if anybody's here willing to trade in the dinner they had for this, uh, but you've got, um, whether those are olives or something else, a traditional uh, dinner from this time. If you were going to eat, you know, Daniel shared a minute ago about missions in Romania. If you've ever been on a mission trip anywhere, there's a decent chance you ate on the floor. Anybody ever gotten to do that before? And so reclining at the table would be a little bit more formal than the typical practice that might be at at a table of some kind or even eating on the floor. You can see here an upper room guest chamber in that area of the world some years ago where people would gather around and eat in that way. There are some things that are left to us to show sort of typical pattern of reclining at the table, which is what we see here, where you'd sort of lay sideways and eat in a relaxed way. That was sort of the really fancy way to eat. It wasn't the normal way, but if you were involved in something that was social uh, and, and important, it might be the way Uh, that you were to eat. You want to see a layout of sometimes the way it would look in the home. You'd have this way that you'd sort of position yourself where your head was facing towards the table and your feet weren't too close to the table, thank the Lord. If you've ever had a small kid, you know that uh, sooner or later they're trying to get those feet up on that table and it's still still just not right. But imagine, I don't know about y'all, I don't think I could eat laying down. Anybody else? That just doesn't appeal to me, but that's the recreational, slow, patient, social way, you know, to eat at this time period. So more than likely, it was, you know, this sort of model that you come to for, uh, for, for what was happening, that this more than likely was in someone important's home, and the fact that this woman comes into a home, and it doesn't seem to, nobody tries to stop her, it shows the practice where if someone important was giving a, almost like giving a banquet or a conference at that point, the doors would be left open so that people could come in and view what was happening, that you could have an audience. 
And so she more than likely comes in in that way to the important meal that was happening around that area. If you've ever went to a conference with a panel discussion, probably something like that is sort of the feel that you had the main event, those folks who were reclining, and then you'd have others who were coming in just to hear what was said. Now, as Jesus starts to talk about debt in just a moment too, I thought this was really neat. This is a stone uh, that's still left to us from sometime even before the time period we study tonight, where the debts that were owed by people were etched into stone. Now, some of you, when you get your monthly mortgage payment, it feels like that, doesn't it? This, you know, etched into stone. We still have that phrase of kind of the permanence of that. Imagine debt being so significant that it's just, you know, almost engraved there for your whole life. This is also a, a picture of that being done on, on bronze that would hang in an area near the center of town so people could come and see how much does so-and-so still have to pay on their debt? Well, here it is recorded so we can keep track of it. And so Jesus is going to have a lot to say about debt. He's going to have a lot to say about forgiveness. And he's going to have something to say about peace. And so let's look at our passage tonight in Luke chapter 7. I'm going to begin reading with verse 36 this evening. One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment, and standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head, and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. And now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who's touching him, for she's a sinner. And Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, say it, teacher. A certain moneylender had two debtors, one owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon answered, the one I suppose for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you've judged rightly. And then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she's wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she's not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little, loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. And then those who were at table with him began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sin? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Will you pray with me? Father, may we see this woman. And Lord, would you allow us in our own hearts, our own lives, uh, to have the attitude of wanting to be close to where you are, to realize that if we have been forgiven, we have been forgiven much and to worship at your feet. In Jesus' name, amen. I've got a few points tonight. I want to go ahead and dive right in. Number one is this. Like this woman, we need to bring meaningful thanks to Jesus. Like this woman, we need to bring meaningful thanks to Jesus. You know, I almost used the word dangerous 
We need to bring dangerous thanks, but I wasn't quite sure how that might come across. <laughs> but it, it was a bit dangerous, wasn't it? Now, here's another thing you might not know. For a woman to let her hair down in this day and age was actually something that could justify a divorce. A woman who was not the spouse of someone else to allow her hair to fall down and to be shown, you know, without being put up, would be seen as something that was just not quite proper and could even be a grounds for divorce. But this woman comes in to where Jesus is and her focus is on how she can worship and how she can honor the Lord Jesus. This is a woman, we are told, who was a sinner. And more than likely, by the tone of the language used, it's not that she was in an unclean profession, that she just wasn't ceremonially clean. No, that word is usually used to describe someone who had a reputation for doing things that were wrong. Whether that meant she was an adulterer, whether that meant she was a prostitute, whether that meant she was involved in tax collection or some other business, we don't, we don't know for sure. But we know that she had a reputation uh, in the town. If you've ever read a book in school called The Scarlet Letter by Nathaniel Hawthorne, it's one of those books that you just about always have to read uh, when you're going through high school. Magnificent book written by a man in the 1700s, but it is about a lady who carries with her a, a constant having to, she has a monogram on her, her clothes that always bears a red A to show that some time back she had been an adulterer. And through the series in that book, you come to find out, you know, more information about that. But one thing that Hawthorne says in that book is this, in all her interactions with society, however, there was nothing that made her feel as if she belonged to it. She stood apart from mortal interests, yet close beside them like a ghost that revisits the familiar fireside and can no longer make itself seen or felt. I don't know if you've ever felt marked by failure in here before. I don't know if you've ever carried something that you hold a regret for. I don't know if you've ever faced a difficulty or just something, some area to bring you guilt, shame, embarrassment, whatever it might be. There's times that we sort of feel marked uh, by, by mistakes uh, or whatever it is. And this woman, as she comes to Jesus, is carrying her mistake even with the hope of forgiveness. And I believe probably already having experienced forgiveness. And this is a uh, response for her. You know, the word that's used here in the Greek for crying is the word that's usually used to describe rainfall, that she's not crying a tear or two, that this is tears that are flowing down her face and anointing the feet of Jesus. As I mentioned, Mark and Matthew tell us uh, that she also anointed his head. Jesus mentions his head being anointed, though we're not told what she does specifically in Luke. But she has a love as a response to forgiveness. And in her way of showing love, she takes her most precious possession and she offers meaningful thanks to Jesus. First John 4, 19 says this, we love because he first loved us. We love because he first loved us. She is experiencing what it is to be loved and to be forgiven. And she responds by offering the most meaningful thing that she has. So we see this woman's reaction that she comes in and she's worshiping the Lord. We'll see the language that's used in John, even if that's a different occasion. Jesus says that she's anointing him uh, for burial, that there's this very appropriate way in, in all that happens that she's offering meaningful thanks. You know, it's real easy for us to offer token thanks to the Lord, isn't it? Verbal thanks, lip service thanks, that, nothing comes easier. But that 
meaningful thanks that comes from deep inside, that's something that requires a lot more intention. And I think we honor the Lord the most when we're willing to offer that. Number two, we get to Simon's perspective, and, and I think we see here that when we look at worship and see sin, something is wrong on the inside of us. When we look at worship and see sin, something's wrong on the inside of us. Tony Evans relays a story that Chuck Swindoll told about preaching a revival service some years ago. And as Chuck Swindoll preached that service, he had a man that came up to him who had traveled in for this revival, and he said, I'm so excited about getting to hear you, Dr. Swindoll. And he said, well, great. And they began that Sunday night revival, and this man sat on the front row with his wife. As Chuck Swindoll started to preach, it wasn't about five minutes in, this man was fast asleep. Chuck Swindoll thought, well, that's a little strange. Well, maybe he had a long drive. Maybe it was a hard day. The next night, there was that man and his wife again. Sure enough, Chuck Swindoll got, off, got up to speak, started to speak. Five minutes in, this man fell fast asleep again. And so Monday night, Tuesday night, Wednesday night, all the same, finally Thursday night for the last time, once again, this man seated on the front row seemed so excited. It wasn't very long into the sermon that he once again, five for five, had put this man to sleep. The man's wife came up to Chuck Swindoll afterwards and she said, I just want to apologize for my husband. It's not been long ago that we received a terminal cancer diagnosis for him. And he's been given two weeks to live and as we were planning his last days, he said, you know what I just want to do before I go to glory is get to hear Chuck Swindoll speak. And he's on medicine that is for his pain that he just can't stay awake as long as he's got it. But my husband's never been so excited as he was to come and sit and to hear you speak. And Chuck Swindoll said he could have crawled under a rock at that moment. You know, we're quick to judge at times. We're quick to think certain things. And Simon, as he sees this woman's reaction of worship, he doesn't see someone who has been forgiven in whom he can rejoice. He sees someone who he thinks is working the system or someone who he thinks is not good enough to be at the feet of Jesus. And so he not only thinks wrongly about this woman, but he thinks wrongly about the Lord Jesus. Do you see what he says in his own heart? If this man were a prophet, he would have known, verse 39, who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. Verse 40, and Jesus answering. <laughs> you know, Jesus doesn't just answer the things we say out loud. But he sees the things that go on on the inside too. And a lot of times we're real good at keeping it from coming out of our mouths, aren't we? But the Lord Jesus often has a lot to say for the things that go through our own mind and he might not say it verbally to us the same way he said it to Simon, but many of us at times find ourselves guilty for the things that are going through our mind that the Lord confronts us on. Jesus said, Simon, I have something to say to you. And then Simon said some of the most dangerous words he'd ever said. Say it, teacher. Whew, you don't know what you're asking, Simon. Better hold on to that recliner. Not sure what this is going to be like. And Jesus begins to tell a parable. A certain moneylender had two debtors, and one owed him 500 denarii and the other 50. If you want to try to put it in American dollars, the closest I could get today is one person owed him $80,000, the other person owed him about 9000 When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which of them will love him more? And Simon answered, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you've judged rightly. Number three, 
If our hearts are cold, it's because we failed to read the bill. If our hearts are cold, it's because we have failed to read the bill. Each of us have a debt that we cannot pay. We never have paid it. It is not really any more than anybody else's because while there may be things in someone else's life that you'd say, well, I've never done that or I've never done this, there's probably a decent chance they could look at any one of our lives and say, yeah, but I've never done that and I've never done this. We all stand equally guilty in comparison with our Heavenly Father and in need of radical forgiveness. Let me go ahead and give you a spoiler alert. None of us has been forgiven little if we've been forgiven. And so for the Lord Jesus, as he looks at Simon, he says this question that just hits right at his heart. Do you see this woman? Have you paid attention to anything that's gone on so far, Simon? Have you missed what has taken place? You know, there's a difference between show and repentance. This passage doesn't just teach us, hey, if you'll make a big fuss about something, that's what God's really after. That's not what this passage teaches. One of the reasons that I uh, never drank alcohol coming up, uh, except for a few shots of Romanian communion wine in different church services, was, uh, was that, it, you know, I, I got a chance to watch different family members deal with stuff in my extended family, but I had always heard stories about my great-grandfather whose family was practically destitute because of what little money that they made he used to just soothe his, his uh, whatever he was dealing with with alcohol. And that he often would make Fridays and Saturdays pure terror for what he was doing in terms of all the alcohol that was moving through him. And on Sunday morning, he'd be at the Amen pew at church and trying to repent for everything that had been done. Now, I can't pretend to know what was going on in the mind and heart of my great-grandfather, and I don't want to try to do that, but I do think that the people around him felt that what he was doing was more show than what it was was true repentance. And it's possible to put on a show and to not have anything real going on in your heart. But it's also possible to sit back in the recliner and to feel smug and to look at someone showing emotion and to say, well, I don't know why they got to be all about that. Sometimes what we need is to break the societal norm just enough to show emotion and to really respond to the Lord Jesus. If our hearts are cold, it's because we've failed to read the bill. Because I tell you what, if you'll read the bill, if you'll examine your own heart and life of what Jesus has forgiven you for and really honestly take a toll and a, and a look at that, you can't help but be thankful. You can't help but look to him. Number four, we are far too often like Simon and too rarely like this woman. This story is in the Bible, I believe, not only so that we would honor what this woman had done, but also so that we would see the warning that's here. Again and again in Luke's gospel, we see the comparison of those who are religiously elite, but they are emotionally unmoved. They are unwilling to believe, they are unwilling to respond, and the comparison then of what it means for those who even in the farthest reaches of their lives of sin are willing to believe and come to Christ. The passage we looked at last week, Jesus was confronting the Pharisees with that same truth. This story is then given as proof of that. 
Many of you are familiar with the story of the prodigal son. We're working towards that story in Luke 15, and the stage is being set for all that. You remember the prodigal son, if you're familiar with that story, coming home to his father in this great scene where the father runs, puts his arms around him, kisses him, welcomes his son back into the family. Then you find out that there's a second prodigal son, and that prodigal son stills worn a suit and tie every day that he's been there. He's worked just as hard as he was ever meant to work. He's followed all the rules. He's done everything but his heart is hard and cold. There was an artist that did a painting of this as if it took place in the 1800s, just as sort of thinking outside the box. I've liked this image of the son running home to his father and his father embracing him. But do you see who's off here on the side? The older brother staring forward, unwilling to look at his younger brother, unmoved, unloving, cold. If we're not careful, we can find ourselves cynical, pessimistic, unloving. And we don't simply respond that way to other people and then we have our own relationship with the Lord that's warm and loving. No, those things work together. That we're unwilling to forgive other people. We'll find ourselves also hardened to the things of God and the realization of seeing, no, I need a lot of forgiveness. I need God's help in the things that uh, I walk through. And so number five, all we can bring to Jesus is our need and our sin, and he responds with forgiveness and peace. All we can bring to Jesus, the old hymn, nothing in my hands I bring, simply to the cross I cling. All we can bring is our need and our own sin. Jesus responds with forgiveness and peace. At a time where we are not privy to, Jesus and this woman had probably had a conversation. She had been forgiven despite whatever she had gone through. This that we see is her response to what has happened. And then we see these great words of Jesus as he looks her in the face in verse 50. And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. When we've met Jesus, the war is over. The battle is done. And Jesus has won the peace. And so his offer to us is that, you know, there probably never would have been a Protestant Reformation if it wasn't for a man named Erasmus. He was very important in the translation of the Bible. He was also someone very important for setting the stage for men like Martin Luther. There was a man in England around the time that Erasmus was in ministry named Thomas Bilney, and he talked a lot about the emptiness of the religion that he walked through, that he had seen so far, and he said, you know, there was a difference that was made whenever I was able to meet Erasmus. Erasmus had come to England. He had translated the New Testament into Latin, which was widely readable in England at that time. For the first time, people could read the Bible in a language they could understand, and Bilney purchased a copy of it. And this is what he said about Erasmus's impact and the New Testament's impact in his own heart and life. Listen to this. My soul was sick and I longed for peace, but nowhere could I find it. I went to the priests, and they appointed me penances and pilgrimages, yet by these things my soul was not set free. But at last I heard of Jesus. It was then when first the New Testament was set forth by Erasmus that the light came. I bought the book, being drawn by the Latin rather than by the Word of God. For at that time I knew not what the Word of God meant. And on my first reading I chanced upon these words. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. 
This one sentence, through God's inward working, did so light up my poor bruised spirit that the very bones within me leapt for joy and gladness. It was as if after a long, dark night, day had suddenly broken. You know, for us, the experience of knowing Jesus is the daybreak into the darkness, and it never changes. It is once and for all unto salvation, but it is daily, weekly, hourly, moment by moment sometimes with the strength that we need from Him and the forgiveness that we need and the realization that His grace is greater than all our sin as we sang Sunday. And so here's what I'd like to do. We've got just a few minutes left, and it's Wednesday night. We don't always do this kind of thing on Wednesday night, but I think it's appropriate. You know, remember Jesus driving out the money changers and saying, did you not know my father's house was to be a house of prayer? Well, tonight, especially as we end this and look at a passage like this, can we take just a few moments to sit at Jesus's feet? Let's just take some time in silence and in prayer. There's going to be some music just in the background. And as this plays, you know, I just want to invite you, just go before the Lord and say the things you need to say. Go to him the way that he would lead in your own heart. Are you willing, even if necessary, to have the raindrops fall and to lean in to what he has for each one of us? Are you willing to worship and thank him? You know, the Hebrew language didn't have a word for thankfulness. And so that's believed that's why Jesus uses the word for love here. And we're reminded of the fact that you can't truly love the Lord unless you're thankful. So are you willing to go to him tonight? Let's just go before our Father, go before our Savior. You say to him what's on your mind and heart. Let's spend a few moments here just praying together, looking to him, sitting at his feet. Father, we thank you for the Savior. And we thank you for the fact that all we can offer at times is to just rest at the feet of Jesus and find that your peace, your grace, your forgiveness is enough. And so, Lord, we thank you. We praise you for a chance to hear from uh, Daniel Bird, our missionary tonight that's here. We thank you for a chance to celebrate what you've done in our church through the ways uh, that folks have responded in giving and just the way that you've opened up the heavens in that way. And Lord, we thank you for the way that far more than that, you have opened up the heavens for forgiveness for all of us who needed it. And so Lord, may we not be a Simon, but will you help us to respond, to remember, to love greatly because we've been forgiven greatly. It's in Jesus' name we ask this. All God's people said, amen. amen.